So tonight I'd like to talk about how this practice of concentration fits into the path of practice as a whole. The other night, Sally talked about the Buddha's own path and how he had practiced in the style of his day the deep concentration practices leading to some of the formless jhanas that Philip mentioned last night. And he had discovered in that practice that the way they were practicing those states of concentration wasn't the answer to his question. That, that the states themselves were, were not what he was looking for in terms of the solution to the problem he was struggling with. And then after his ascetic practices, he came back and had a reflection about a time when he was young, when he was a young boy sitting underneath the rose apple tree watching his father and how he recalled a state of concentration that he had moved into at that time and wondered, maybe that is the way, maybe, maybe there's something in that. And so I've been curious myself about what was it that he understood in that moment because he had been through very deep concentration practices with his two previous teachers, with two of his previous teachers. And yet somehow in his reflection, thinking back on that time when he was young, he had an understanding that maybe this is the way and I was, I'm curious about what's the difference. Why, why did he not think that the states of jhana he'd practiced with his teachers were the way and this state when he was a child was the way? So my understanding of this, and there are different views about this, but one way to look at this, one way to understand this, is that when he was practicing with the, his teachers, in the deeper states of jhana, the framework of those practices was that those states themselves were the highest attainment possible. And he saw for himself that that wasn't the answer that he was looking for. But when he revisited the states, the state of jhana from his childhood, he perhaps saw or realized that it could be a turning towards that the state of concentration didn't have to be an end in itself, but could be a doorway through which wisdom could be reached. So this points to one way that concentration or right concentration is defined in the suttas. There's a couple of different ways it's defined and one of the main definitions is that right concentration is these four jhanas. In many places in the suttas it says, and what is right concentration? It is this first jhana with all its attendant factors and the second jhana with the letting go of the vitaka vichara, etc., through the, the four jhanas. 
And there's another definition that concentration equipped with seven requisites is right concentration. What is noble right concentration with its supports and requisites? That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness. Unification of mind equipped with these seven factors is called noble right concentration with its supports and requisites. So this is pointing to the framework in which concentration is understood. And essentially the definition in this, this definition of right concentration includes the purpose to which the concentration is directed, the intention towards which the concentration is directed. In the Buddhist path, concentration is developed and cultivated in the service of liberation, in the service of freedom from suffering, from stress, from dissatisfaction, from dukkha. And this is what the Buddha explored. The suttas describe him entering the states of jhana and then after that directing his mind, this concentrated and purified mind, towards understanding this problem of suffering. So when he looked at the world, when the Buddha looked at the world, he saw that people were going about their lives trying to be happy, trying to find happiness. And in every action that they did, seeing it slip through their grasp. That essentially the way in which we habitually try to find happiness without some instruction pointing us in another direction the actual way that we try to find happiness actually leaves us feeling dissatisfied, leaves us feeling unhappy, struggling, suffering. So even if it's not a strong state of suffering, there's almost always something that feels a bit off. Something that's just like, well, why, why is it so difficult? Or... Why aren't things working out the way they'd, I'd like them to? Isn't there something more? Almost always some feeling that things aren't quite right, that there's a dissonance in our minds with things as they are. We hold on to things, try to hold on to things that inherently can't stay. We try to get rid of things that we don't like. So in his awakening, as he directed his concentrated mind towards this problem of suffering, he understood how the suffering was created. He understood the suffering itself, how it came to be, 
the relationship between his mind, his wanting, his not wanting, the craving, and the suffering. He understood the possibility of freedom from that suffering by letting go of that craving. And he understood the path, how it's possible actually to become free from this suffering. This path is usually expressed in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path. Most of you are very familiar with with the Noble Eightfold Path. The path which I just mentioned of wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. This path is often understood in three sections, that the first two aspects, wise understanding and wise intention, are wisdom that needs to be understood to some extent before we really want to engage in the path, to want to engage in practices. The second aspect being the ethical component, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. The third aspect being the aspect of mental cultivation, wise, mind, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. That's one way that the path is often described. That version of the path ends with concentration. There's another way that the path is described where it begins with ethical conduct, the the training that the Buddha offered, called the gradual training, begins with ethical conduct, then moves on to training the mind and culminates in wisdom. So in a sense, we could look at the Noble Eightfold Path as a a cycle, as a a circle. It, It begins with some form of wisdom, of kind of intellectual understanding that we need some kind of intellectual understanding of what this problem of suffering is. This intellectual understanding of what actions and states of mind lead us into suffering, what actions and states of mind lead us away from suffering. Some understanding of how cause and effect works in our experience that when we act out of states that are motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion, those tend to lead us into states of suffering. When we act out of states motivated by non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, those tend to lead us away from suffering. So the initial understanding in right understanding is an intellectual grasp of the teachings combined with some reflection on them. Thinking, actually thinking about them. Does this make sense to me? As we think about this, explore this, if it does begin to make sense to us, there's kind of two parts that come together, you know, that, that we, we have a sense of suffering in our own lives 
And this teaching is pointing us towards freedom from suffering. There's a little bit of a leap of faith that's engaged in, that's, that's brought up in engaging in this path of practice. A little bit of a, I'm suffering, this suggestion of this path says that it will lead me to the end of suffering. Perhaps I can engage. This movement towards engaging is the movement of right intention. The movement to actually explore these practices. So those are the first two aspects of the Eightfold Path that we begin with hearing the teachings, understanding them to some extent in our reflective capacity, and beginning to engage. But that's not the the full fruition of those two aspects of the path of right understanding and right intention. And we'll come back to that later. So with this intention to engage... We, we start to explore some of the practices that are offered. And the next set of practices, the next aspect of the Eightfold Path, are a set of ethical practices, the practices of wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And this essentially is the practices that begin to create some harmony in our relationships with the world, creating balance in our lives in the, uh, the way that we engage the way that we meet people, the way we meet our environment. Harmonizing our relationship with the world, with other people, with this intention towards non-harming. Living peacefully in the world. And as we engage in those practices, we start to see some of the ways in which our mind reaches out to want to do things. And because we're engaged in the ethical practices, we we refrain from doing things perhaps that our mind is prompting us to do. And so we start to see the need for a mental cultivation. So this need for mental development as a part of the path comes back to the understanding from the the first aspect of the Eightfold Path, from right understanding, the understanding of how this suffering comes to be, of how this dukkha comes to be. When we reflect on it and begin to look at it in our experience, we see that largely it happens because we are resisting the way things are, or we're trying to hold on to the way things are. Either there's something in the world as it is that we don't like, we want to get rid of it, we want to push it away, or get ourselves out of the environment, or there's something in the way things are that we want to try to keep and hold on to, which is a, an exercise in suffering because that thing will change. We think 
this comes back to what the Buddha saw. We think that if we can arrange the world to our desires, then we will be happy. There's a poem that I like that kind of describes this process that we go through. This is an excerpt from Rilke's eighth Duino elegy. And we, spectators, always, everywhere, turn toward the world of objects. It fills us. We arrange it. It breaks down. We rearrange it, then break down ourselves. Who has twisted us around like this so that no matter what we do, we are in the posture of someone going away? We have twisted ourselves around like this. The impermanence is a fact of life. The fact that we think we can arrange the world to our satisfaction and be happy is a fundamental misunderstanding of how happiness is possible for us. So when we see what's happening, we start to actually recognize that the suffering that we're experiencing is a process that's happening in our own minds. The resistance to things as they are is a process that's going on in our own minds. The wanting to hold on to things is a process that's happening in our own minds. So we start to get the inkling that it's these processes in our minds that are the cause of our dissatisfaction. Hence, the need for mental cultivation, to cultivate wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. To look at our minds, to begin to understand how they work. In our typical experience of the mind, as you're all very familiar with, It's very scattered. It jumps around. It goes from thing to thing, from idea to idea. It's propelled by mental habits that largely feed on not being aware of them. They're they're based, these mental habits that we operate out of are largely based in unawareness. So this practice of mental cultivation, of wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, begins to bring some settledness into our lives. This is really what we've been practicing. The settling of our minds through bringing these three factors together. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration work together to settle the mind, to support this mental cultivation. Much of what has been happening here on this retreat is learning about right effort and how right effort and right mindfulness work together. 
that the effort to stay connected to experience in the present moment in a balanced way, in a relaxed way, staying connected with, not gripping onto, and also not losing touch with, that's an aspect of right effort, the balance of effort. The effort to begin to understand what things are worth saying not now to, the letting go of the hindrances, the turning towards the factors that support the development of concentration. Using mindfulness to allow us to recognize what's skillful and what's unskillful in terms of creating concentration. These two factors coming together, wise effort and wise mindfulness, result in wise concentration. the concentration resulting from, as we've said, the sustaining of the mindfulness over time, whether on a single object of the breath or whether a stabilizing of the mindfulness, even with changing experience. So there's a large terrain that these three factors cover wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And I'm going to kind of explore the edges, some of the edges of that terrain, which we've kind of talked about over the week, but I'm just going to really um, clearly define some of the edges of that terrain and then explore, explore some of the ways in which there can be a blending of those, those edges. So one edge of that terrain is the one-pointed concentration. The concentration that is cultivated in the way that we have been doing these days by bringing the attention back to one object of experience over and over again. It serves as a very um, stable and settling unification of mind to collect the mind around the single, a single object. The body becomes still. There's a lot of peace, joy, contentment, calm. Sometimes rapture, sukha can arise. So this is largely the terrain that we've been exploring in these days. Another edge of this terrain is what might be called, what is sometimes called kanika samadhi, which means moment-to-moment concentration, which is generally a concentration that is, it, it can be cultivated by stabilizing the mindfulness through changing experience. So the mindfulness just meets whatever the next experience is. A sight, a sound, a pressure, a vibration, a thought, an emotion, a dryness, a pulsing, a heat, a coolness. Just a flow of ever-changing experience. The mind that can stay stable and steady with that experience also becomes quite concentrated. It's that stillness of mind that can meet the movement 
Philip was talking about stillness and movement last night. And in the, the concentration practice that we've been working with, it's a movement towards more and more stillness, letting go. It's a m- from movement to stillness. The kanika samadhi, the moment-to-moment concentration, brings a stillness to the awareness and the, the awareness can open to a changing flow of experience. This kind of concentration can be extremely powerful. The jhanic factors also come together in this kind of concentration. The five jhanic factors appear. They suppress the hindrances in this kind of con- concentration. Joy, happiness arise The one-pointedness isn't the one-pointedness on a single object. It's that unification of mind that can stay still and not be caught by any event and start drifting out after it or being propelled out to think about an emotion or a thought or a pressure or a vibration. Just the stream of experience coming through. In this kind of practice, we generally make the effort to sustain the mindfulness over time on changing experience. So these are kind of the edges of the terrain, but in large in large measure, much of what we do is somewhere in the middle, in the large terrain in the middle, where we unify our mind to some extent on the breath, but we're noticing the changing experience of the breath. Or we bring our attention into the body and feel the breath through the body. And the breath infuses all of the experience. So we're connected to the breath in in a way that stabilizes the mind. And yet that breath includes the world. So there there are different ways. I, I don't want to give you the sense that it's one or the other. There's a large terrain in the middle. And most people find their way, as we, as we explore concentration practice, most people find their way to some place where their mind feels like it's at home in this terrain. And that's a different place for different people. Some people move into very, very deep stillness. Other people move into much more of that open awareness. And none, no one is better than the other as long as we are pointing the concentration towards this understanding of suffering. So whether we're cultivating this one-pointed concentration or the moment-to-moment concentration or somewhere in the middle. This unification of the mind, these three factors of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration coming together gives a settling down of the jumpy mind, the distracted mind. It settles down the emotional reactivity rather than 
seeing the world through our normal state of habitual patterns and tendencies, we start to come into a place that is non-reactive. This is again the stillness that Philip was talking about last night. So right concentration, as I said earlier, is the last aspect of the Eightfold Path, but it is not the end of the path. We cultivate right concentration so that we can move towards an understanding of seeing things as they are. So this is a revisitation of the wisdom aspect of the Eightfold Path, right understanding and right intention. So beginning with an intellectual understanding, we explore the practices. And through the cultivation of this mentally unified mind, we can direct our attention towards our experience and begin to actually understand, directly understand what the Buddha was talking about with respect to how suffering is created, how we react to experience. We have a direct understanding of this core holding, this craving, and a letting go of that craving, even if for just a moment. And we have a taste of what it means to not suffer. So the Buddhist understanding, one of the ways that this understanding of suffering is expressed is that suffering is a result of greed, aversion, and delusion in our minds. And the most concise definition that I know of from the suttas of what enlightenment is, is the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. I'd like to read some of these passages to you. I find them kind of inspiring. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called Nibbana. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, Blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, man aims at his own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and he experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, man aims at neither his own ruin, nor at the ruin of other, nor at the ruin of both, and he experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, 
and naught more remains for her to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so, neither forms nor sounds nor odors nor tastes nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is her mind, gained is deliverance. This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. There's a couple of points of that that I just want to highlight. One that he says, one of the ways that nibbana is defined in addition to being the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion Essentially, he says, the result of that is one experiences no mental pain or grief. Just imagine what life would be like with no mental pain or grief. There would be no problem. The other piece that I find inspiring here is that he says, this is visible in this life. This is not some far-off future kind of possibility. It is actually possible. The, the extinction of greed, aversion, and delusion, to me, sounds like something that can be experienced while walking around. It's not something that we have to be off in some mystical trance to experience. Visible in this life. It's at least how I like to hold it. So the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion is essentially the direction that we are aiming our right concentration towards. Deep at the root of these three is the quality of ignorance. Normally when we think of this word ignorance, we we think of a kind of a passive state of not knowing. But the ignorance that is underlying greed, aversion, and delusion is far more pernicious than that. It's actually an active misunderstanding that alters the way we perceive things, the way we view things. It's an active misunderstanding of what would make us happy. Three of the primary misunderstandings, you'll probably recognize these. They're taking what is impermanent to be permanent, what is unsatisfactory as being satisfactory, and what is not self as being self. And I'd like to just talk about this for a few moments. Part of the reason we, we have this misunderstanding kind of partly built into our whole perceptual process. That that we take what is impermanent to be permanent, 
This is partly because the impermanent nature of experience is masked by the fact that the change is happening so quickly. Last night, Philip talked about seeing that things are happening not like five times faster, but hundreds of times faster than you can even comprehend. This rapidity of change actually masks the change. It makes it appear solid. And just a a very simple analogy of this is the... It, does, it doesn't work this way anymore in the movie theaters, but, you know, the, the film that they used to have projectors and every frame was a separate still object and they run that past the light quickly and it creates the appearance of, of something continuous happening. So it doesn't appear to be these broken bits of experience. It just appears to be a flow that, seems continuous and the rapidity of change in our experience is very like that it masks the impermanent by the very quickness of its change the coming into concentration the settling of the mind with this sharp knife edge of concentration can begin to discern the rapidity of change So this training in the mind is starting to unmask these misunderstandings. It unmasks this misunderstanding about impermanence. So taking what is unsatisfactory as being satisfactory as a source of happiness. This again, this is the the belief that we are happy when we get what we want. That that's how happiness comes about. Now, we've learned that since we were babies, that when we get what we want, it feels good. So we think that's the way to be happy because we've learned over and over again when we get what we want, it feels good. It makes us feel happy. For just a moment, it makes us feel happy. What we begin to see through this concentrated mind, the mind that can actually see into experience, is that a large part of the happiness that comes when we get something, some of it comes from the getting the thing that we want. But most of that happiness actually comes because the wanting itself has stopped. And the mind that is willing to just meet the experience with this concentration, this concentrated mind that's willing to just observe wanting instead of acting on it, can start to see the deeper kind of happiness that comes not from getting what we want, but from watching the wanting go away. The mind that's willing to hang out with that wanting and watch it fade away as an impermanent phenomenon. If you can hang out with wanting and watch it go away, it feels like being released from a vice grip. Quite a startling experience, actually. 
So the impermanence of our experience is masked by the rapidity of change. The very fact that things are impermanent is one of the reasons why things are unsatisfactory. Why they're unsatisfactory as a source of something, as a lasting source of happiness. If we hold on to something, try to hold on to something, you know, if we even get what we want, and so we, we you know, manage to maneuver things for a little while to get what we want, even if we get that thing, inherently in that getting, that happiness is unsatisfactory because it's destined to fall apart as that thing which we're holding on to is impermanent and won't last. This is another thing we can really begin to see, the unsatisfactoriness of experience as a place for lasting happiness. There's no experience that we can have that is going to do it for us. We think we can try to string them together, and that might do it for us. We suffer because we hold on to things that are impermanent. And what's even more amazing, you know, as we we really start to see things clearly with this mind of concentration and mindfulness, is that what we're holding on to, what we think we want, actually doesn't really exist. It's, it's, a, it's a construction of our own minds. What we want is just made up by our own minds. I had kind of a, an example of this on one retreat. I had heard about this insight called arising in passing, which is described as being a very lovely experience of just seeing things coming into being and vanishing that you know the mind is so stable it just sees things very clearly coming into being and vanishing usually it's described as being quite a the initial taste of that is described as being quite a, a joyful occurrence i really wanted this experience i suffered a lot wanting that experience and i looked i got, I, I got to look at that suffering watch that suffering see what was going on and finally, what I realized, because I had no idea what this was that I wanted, right? I mean, no clue what arising and passing was. I had read something about it in a book, constructed some idea in my mind, perhaps, of what it might be like. But when I really looked at what I wanted, what I wanted to do, I saw myself telling my teacher in an interview that I had had this experience, and that was what I wanted. I wanted to be able to tell someone I had had that experience. That made me laugh. <laughs> what I wanted was a construct in my own mind. This is much of how our minds work. And this is revealed to us through the concentration and the mindfulness. Taking what is not self to be self there's so many different habits and patterns that we have that we kind of 
we've inherently assumed to be who we are, ways that we've been for so long that we can't even imagine being without them. I myself had a pattern, a strong pattern, before I really moved into this practice, of really believing I was a miserable person. And, you know, I was just miserable a lot of the time. But when I was happy, the belief that I was miserable was so strong that the thought in my mind was something like, well, yeah, I'm happy now, but what I, re- I know I really am a miserable person. <laughs> so that is creating a self. You know, it's, it's that, that self thing. There was evidence that I wasn't completely a miserable person, but I was seeing through this view of a miserable self. And that's how I saw my world. So these misperceptions, these are misperceptions that we have. And the gathering the mind together through effort, mindfulness, and concentration can begin to reveal these misperceptions. With respect to not-self, we start to see our experience as just a flow, a process. We really begin to see the cause and effect nature of our experience, that there's no thing here really to call I or me. It's much like a, a seed that grows into a tree given the right conditions. Now, there's no thing that is the tree. I mean, if you have a seed, there's not a tree there. You know, as you plant it in the ground, there's not a tree there. That seed contains the potential for becoming a tree when the conditions are right. When the tree comes into being, the process, it's a natural process by which that happens. There's no thing driving that process other than just these force, this force of causes and conditions. Who we are is very like that. There's no, no one really guiding the process. It's just this flow of causes and conditions. As we start to see into these misperceptions through this concentration and mindfulness together, sometimes the insights that we meet can be a little disturbing or unsettling, maybe you could say. Seeing the rapidity of change can be quite unsettling. This is, again, where the concentration really supports us. The concentrated mind, we need that concentrated mind to be able to hold some of the deeper insights that happen on this path. The concentrated mind is stable, balanced, able to meet things as they are. The equanimity, the tranquility allows us to open our hearts to things as they are.
So there's different ways to use the concentration. Different ways that the concentration supports these insights. One of the ways is very much what we have been doing. We are learning about causes and conditions, cause and effect, as we practice to settle the mind. The very process of learning how to use these tools, learning how to balance the energy and effort, learning how to aim and sustain the attention. We are learning about cause and effect. We learn how to say not now to the hindrances. We learn that that supports the settling of concentration. The whole practice of concentration gives us a really great education in cause and effect. How a concentrated mind is put together, what comes in to make it fall apart. This is, this is an understanding that can support our deepening of insight into cause and effect. One of the main ways to direct this concentrated mind towards experience, to open, to begin to open to insight, is to turn the concentrated mind towards changing experience. We can settle the mind in a unified kind of concentration through stabilizing, settling the mind on the breath. And after the mind has become quite stable, perhaps going through the jhanas, but not necessarily needing to go through the jhanas, we can take that power of the concentration, which is like sharpening a knife, and turn that mind that is concentrated, change the object of experience from the stable object towards changing experience. This might be as simple as attuning towards the changing nature of the breath itself. Or it might be an opening to a broader range of experience. It might be beginning to open to the way the body moves a little bit with the breath. Or it might be opening to sound or other body sensations. It might be recognizing thoughts coming and going like images in the mind just appearing and disappearing. The main shift in moving from concentration into insight practice is this attunement to change. As we start to attune that mind to change, we begin to directly see much more clearly the impermanent nature of experience. 
these insights, this, these insights into these misperceptions, the insight into impermanence, the insight into unsatisfactoriness, the insight into not-self, these are the insights that begin to free the mind, that begin to educate the mind in non-clinging. The mind that sees that things are impermanent doesn't particularly want to pick things up, to hold on to them. The mind that understands that when something is, that an experience, that holding on to it will bring suffering, it doesn't particularly want to pick it up. So this direct seeing, this ability to turn the mind to meet changing experience begins to open our hearts, our minds to these deeper insights of wisdom that move us towards a letting go or even towards a not, a not, a non-grasping. So this movement, we've been moving from movement to stillness. And this movement towards turning towards change is taking that stillness and opening to movement. That still mind meeting changing experience. Let's sit for a few moments.
Thank you for your attention to the Dhamma.